0: This is In Tune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series, opera that speaks, theater that sings, an oasis of intimate, inspiring, and innovative ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of in-series, and this is an In My Solitude episode. I don't know about you, but I have been feeling a little down, especially since Washington, D.C. went into a total lockdown as it were at uh uh, 1201 on thursday morning um it's it's been surprising to me the deep emotional impact it's had on me i don't know if you've been keeping up with our uh in series uh digital content specifically these podcasts uh last week i was raring to go i did um not only this In Tune podcast, but also I did daily intros to the Metropolitan Opera, uh, that they were, uh, that they were streaming each evening. Um, and then, then it has been silence for the last four or five days. I found it, um, difficult to find the time, honestly, to watch the broadcasts, let alone make a commentary on them, um, with all the emergency, uh, activity that we've had to we've had to put in place to get ready for the for the lockdown but also to find the spirit to to commit to that um i'm just starting to to come out of that and i wanted to at least catch you up on a uh, do a mini intro to opera on what we missed uh the last broadcast that i watched and that i commented on was the gutter dameron the final um the final offering in The Ring Cycle, which would have been last Friday. Uh, and over the weekend, they showed uh, Die Meistersinger, which I took a intentional break from. And then on Sunday, they showed Tannhauser. Uh, I did not get a chance to to make a um, an intro to Tannhauser, but we did, uh, my husband and I did watch some of it the next day. Not the Met broadcast. The Met broadcast was of the Otto Schenk, uh production from the mid 1980s um it did have the wonderful peter Mate in it as as wolfram um eva maria westbrook as elizabeth um but I watched one of my favorite productions, which is the David Alden production from Munich. Uh, this is a seminal production. It stars uh, Nadine Secunda, the American soprano, as Elizabeth. Uh, and it uh, stars the fantastic, the amazing, I'm going to speak about her later, um, Walter Meyer as Venus. And this production is David Alden at his at his very best. Um, and Hauser is an incredible piece of music. It is... Um, a piece of music that changes one um, is Wagner at his very best. Um, and there are also parts of the story that are, that are worrisome, but one, um one realizes how novel what he was doing, taking um, inspiration from a completely new uh cultural canon, the German canon, a set of legends that um, most people didn't know, most people still don't know. Uh, And then on Monday, the Mets started a really exciting week. They did the Dialogue of the Carmelites. This is the old John Cox production um, that in the original uh, broadcast, uh, which is the one I know had um, the great uh, Jesse Norman, may she rest in peace, as Lidoin. It had Regine Crespin as the old prioress, Madame Croissy. Uh, Regine Crespin had played Blanche in the original production, the premier French production of, of this opera. Um, it also starred uh, Maria Ewing as as Blanche. Anyway, this new version had the wonderful mezzo-sparanna Isabel Leonard as Blanche. And uh, I, di- I didn't see it, but um, I know the production and I certainly know the piece well. I've directed it many times. There is no moment in theater, um, definitely not an opera, but I would say in all theater that comes anywhere close to the final moments of this opera as the group of nuns walk towards the scaffold singing the salve regina and as they walk they um they are executed one by one until it's down to a single voice it is spine tingling moment you hear each guillotine um um fall if I had done an intro to that opera, and I hope I will sometime in the future, because I've a lot to say about it, I would have talked about Poulenc, his particular relationship with faith, his struggle with faith versus his own sexuality. I don't think anyone, except for maybe Benjamin Britten, and those two, of course, were peers in a way, um, struggled with this this relationship between faith and and um, and sexuality and being gay men. Uh, uh, but Poulenc also was very fascinated with the absurd in the circus Theatre. Of course, his first opera is um, The Breasts of Teresa. Uh, yes, The Breasts of Teresa with um, a very absurd libretto. But his next opera, which is more familiar to us, is La voix The Human Voice, which is just a woman by herself on the telephone um, at the end of A Love Affair. But it is a setting of Cocteau's play uh, and and heartrending, rending but it is not a sort of um, glib um, soap opera about a love drum, but actually it's an absurdist ex- exploration of the human soul and what it means to live in a world where one no longer believes in a god, but one chooses to live and not to die. This is, of course, Camus' um, uh, The Myth of Sisyphus and the beginning of the Absurdist Theater, um, and I believe that Poulenc was very much into this. Cocteau, of course, has to do with the the um, germination of uh, his final opera dialogue, of The Carmelites, um, uh, which had its premiere at La Scala. Poulenc uh, decided to set the, the narrative of a, a real group of nuns who um, were martyred or, or were put to death during the, the French Revolution. And the piece is very much a meditation on suicide versus martyrdom. In the same way, for all men, in a metaphorical sense, is also about deciding to live or to die and what it means to make that decision. The real group of nuns, as they went to their death, they sang the Te Deum. Um, in setting uh, their story, Poulenc chose in the end that they should march to their death singing the Salve Regina instead of the Deum. In mean, Catholic tradition, the Deum is a hymn that can only be sung on the saint days of saints who were saved, so after the birth of Christ. If it is the saint day for Moses or for Abraham, um, the Deum is not sung. Um, for me, I think it's a very powerful statement that he chose uh, with no other explanation to set the Salve Regina instead of the Deum at the end of the opera, and he was expressing his own belief about whether this group of nuns were actually committing um, a suicide or martyrdom. Uh, so to it's a very heavy piece. So Tuesday made up for that with the rebroadcast of the Barber of Seville, starring again Peter Mate as the barber, uh, Juan Diego Flores as as uh, Viva and the incomparable Joyce DiDonato in one of her best roles as Rosina. This was the first year that the Met broadcast um these these uh these live performances. At the time, the simulcasts um it was very well produced. It's a wonderful production not my favorite opera though it is a brilliant opera um sung impeccably well and last night was nixon in china which is perhaps my very favorite opera an opera i'm very close to i saw this um, this very performance actually that they recorded um, at the metropolitan opera Um, i had seen video of the original um it's a james Madalena as nixon is stunning janice kelly as pat nixon is heartbreaking her second act aria which is often forgotten because everyone remembers lady Mao's um i am the wife of Mao Zedong," um but pat nixon's second act opera um uh, this is prophetic is is one of the most gripping and powerful explorations of The heartbreak and the hope and the possibility and the loss of America. Uh, The libretto for Nixon in China was composed uh, by Alice Goodman, who is um, a British poet. She um, collaborated with John Adams and Peter Sellers, the the great director, on uh, Nixon in China, which was a huge success, uh, which premiered at the Houston Grand Opera, and then. Uh, Their second opera was The Death of Klinghopper, which was set to premiere at uh, the San Francisco opera. Um, And it was such a fiasco, San Francisco canceled the performance. The premiere happened at La Monet. It was a fiasco, um, not in terms of the piece, but in terms of the controversy surrounding the piece. The piece dares to give voice to terrorists. It's about the hijacking of the Aquila Laro. Um, cruise ship um, in the 1980s and the death of one passenger who was Jewish um, uh, named Klinghoffer. And of course, the opera's name, The Death of Klinghoffer, and it's written in the style of a Bach Passion. Um, the chorus takes at times the voice of the um, ancestors of the Jews and sometimes the voice of the Palestinians, the ancestors of the Palestinians. And um, It does not make a decision it does not make a conclusion it certainly does not paint the terrorists sympathetically um, but it does um, give them a place to to voice their frustrations and I think part of the controversy with the piece has been that it dares to say that we will not um, solve terrorism until we at least admit the terrorists have a point that they are coming from a place they're not monsters they are not um anathema to being humans um and the 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 issue cannot be solved until we admit that there are issues to be solved anyway uh that piece was was greatly um decried in the press and that experience was so uh terrible for for poet Alice Goodman that she um removed herself from from public life even she became um i believe a vicar at uh at at, uh, one of the colleges at oxford um but i think nixon china is such a great work precisely because and john adams music is amazing but precisely because alice goodwin gave um words that uh, inspired great music and particularly in this aria uh um this is prophetic. And one of my favorite lines from any opera happens in that one. She says, let the face of the Statue of Liberty move just a little. Let her look inward. Um, what what a compelling line. Um, so that's what we've missed. I haven't even looked to see what tonight is, but I am bound and determined that as soon as I finish recording this In Tune podcast, I will uh, introduce myself to whatever opera that is and sit and watch it. I know they're doing the Adrian Noble production of Macbeth, um, this week, which is a stunning production of a f- amazing opera, Verdi's Macbeth, uh, and they're also broadcasting Penny Woolcock, who did a film version. Everything's tied together, a film version of Nick's of um, Death of Klinghoffer, but she also did this uh, Metropolitan Opera and English National Opera production of Bizet's The Pearl Fishers, uh, which is an opera that's very dear to me and and and, um one that i i wouldn't miss especially when sung by the incomparable um diana damaral so uh the title i i chose to title this series perhaps perhaps it'll be a series a podcast in our solitude um referencing of course the song many of you might have remembered that this year we did a production called stormy weather and in that production uh, an amazing, talented, wonderful Nigel Rowe uh, made an appearance as Ariel Ariel, uh, in this new take uh, on Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, his final play, and Nigel was a sort of mystical incarnation of Billie Holiday, and during the piece sang this stunning song by DC's own Duke Ellington, In My Solitude. This song has been uh, on my heart this week as we've sunk into a period of lockdown, not only here in Washington DC, but all throughout the United States and one into the world beyond. It's curious that uh, solitude is the predominant feeling pressing on many of our hearts when rarely before have so many of us humans been connected by a single common experience. That's a beautiful, and painful and powerful paradox in a time that I feel is increasingly defined by paradoxes. Paradoxes like we feel more alone and yet are more than ever all going through the same experience. We are increasingly turning to technology, specifically social media tools, which have long been credited to increase isolation in order to escape states of social disconnection. We offer the most love to our fellow humans We are in connection with them the most and and with the needs of those that we love by staying completely away from each other physically. Paradoxes like these offer a path towards intuitive understanding, which defies the type of logic our brains are comfortable with. In fact, it's by virtue of baffling our brains by presenting a logic impossibility that paradoxes allow us into a deeper sort of knowledge. That's why I love Paradox. Paradoxes open what can be called a liminal space, a space where knowledge is no longer fathomable. I delight in this because this is the very space where naive creative energy transpires. We have a wonderful and committed uh, in-series patron named Alan King. And he's the sort of patron that everyone dreams of. He comes to all our productions. He comes to all our productions with an open spirit and with an intellectual curiosity that makes his experiences deep. Um, He is there to engage and he opens himself and engages. And he's also always presenting me, or, or in series, and I know also Constellation Theatre, with whom we see our space at the Source Theatre, and I'm sure other companies, he is always sharing with us CDs, books, ideas, things he's read, ideas for new pieces. Um, he's always introducing me to new musics. Um, I'm very grateful for this, and this season he brought to me a collection of recordings by and books written about the blues pioneer Robert Johnson. And Johnson was a blues guitarist in the early 20th century, uh, one of whom very few recordings exist, but he was a legend um, himself and a legend about him exists, which is that um, as a young man, he had absolutely no talent or propensity for playing the guitar. uh, And he would sort of be laughed off the stages of juke joints where where he was hanging out. And he disappeared for some time and when he returned, he had a strange virtuosic power on the instrument, an inexplicable ability to play the instrument in, in ways no one had, had ever imagined. Um, and the story goes that during this time away, he had found himself one night at the crossroads um, uh, uh, outside of a town, near some train tracks, where, where two, two roads going in opposite directions crossed. He was visited there by the devil, who offered him the power to master his instrument, in exchange for his soul and having agreed johnson became the greatest bluesman of his age it's a faustian story of course and in series has a particular commitment to american songbooks so the idea of turning the story of johnson into a faust opera is planted somewhere in my head and and i hope that'll happen sometime but more than that uh, i discovered that uh, this image of johnson at the crossroads has become a a popular and common metaphor, metaphor and image for liminal space, for the impossible landscape, a paradox where mystery is made manifold. Paradox is, of course, often connected to faith. In Christian tradition, the conceit of a trinity, of a God that is both three and one at the same time, is a paradox designed to create a space where the congregant can encounter God in a purely open and naive way, a uh, non-cognitive way. While the Roman church couldn't abide with something as unfathomable as a paradox, a uh, paradoxical trinity. The Eastern Church understood that meditating upon this paradox, sitting and staying inside of a concept which one can't understand, where one is uncomfortable, is exactly how one makes a crossroad where one can meet the divine, where one can encounter divine knowledge that is not to be understood with the mind, but with with the spirit, with the soul. This is all over the poetry of one of my favorite... Uh, Poets, the 17th century metaphysical poet John Donne, English poet. You might be surprised to find that my favorite English poet isn't even Shakespeare. Donne wrote poetry of incredible cognitive complexity um, just so the reader could uh, begin to understand in a super conscious way. In this way, Donne was actually quite a modern poet. Uh, He had a particularly powerful life story that led him to this style. He was born a Catholic in a time in English history where um, his people, where the Catholics, were persecuted, greatly persecuted. He himself saw his uncle, who was in secret a priest, burned alive at the stake, along with many other uh, hidden priests. And his family's identity was deeply tied up in, in keeping his faith and keeping that faith a secret. As a young man, however, he decided to renounce his faith to become a Protestant. Um, and he disowned his family and everything he had known so that he could become socially advantaged in 16th century England, so he could get ahead. Unfortunately, it was completely for naught because he was um, involved in a scandal uh, and became a pariah to Protestant society, but he couldn't go back to his Catholic society either. He was completely lost. Um, More than that, he had rejected what he had been taught, what we can assume he considered to be the true faith, only to become a pastor, the rector of St. Paul's in London even, in a faith that he believed to be heretical. He was completely stuck in in, um, a different sort of crossroads. It was an impossible situation, and his sermons and poetic works are bound in this inescapable existential anxiety. um, Faith anxiety. From this place he wrote the Holy Sonnets, his most profound meditation on faith. and they, what makes them profound, is the lack of assurance they offer. We see a man tortured with, with, with the the inability to believe in a God who's created an impossible game scenario in which man um, is been given sin and then is tortured for it. That man has all the desire to be good, but not the will. He's not given by his God the ability to do what the God requires. Um, this is just one of the many paradoxes that Dunn uh, explores in the Holy Sonnets. The most famous, well, one of them, I would say the most famous al is probably Death Be Not Proud, but one of the most famous is, of course, Batter My Heart, uh, in which he explores the paradox of God's love necessitating God's cruelty, and God's cruelty being the only evidence of his love. Uh, He uses the language of violence, the language language of rape, actually, to be uh, what he begs for so that he may be changed, that if God really loved him, God would destroy him to make him new. Um, The text is, Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another, do labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy and me, me, should defend, but is captive and proves weak and untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free." nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Particularly, of course, that last line, the idea that one can't be chaste until one is ravished is 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 particularly powerful and paradoxical. This poem has been set by many, and uh, until most recently, probably the most famous setting, was that by Benjamin Britten, a composer, as we said, that was himself torn by paradox, his own tied up in faith versus uh, his sexuality as a gay man, and that sexuality's, um, in his case, a predilection for uh, at least the company of, of, young, of young men. Um, John Adams and Peter Sellers however continued their collaboration which was born out of Nixon in China with the death of Klinghoffer, then they did a rock opera with a uh, text by June Jordan called I Was Looking at the Ceiling and then I Saw the Sky about race relations and the uh, 1996 I think, 94 um, uh, LA earthquake they then uh, created the flowering tree uh, which is their response to the magic flute uh, and then uh, after that would have been the most recent opera that the, they've just done a new one about the, the, about race relations in the founding and the gold rush of California. But before that, between The Flowering Tree and this new opera, they created Dr. Atomic, which explores Trinity, the testing of the atomic bomb during the Manhattan Project, and in particular, the character of Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer also loved Dunn, and that is why the testing itself was called Trinity uh and the the end of the first act of that opera is adam's own setting of uh, batter my heart by john Donne, um sung by by oppenheimer um the, the atomic age of course gave way to uh, its own age of existential anxiety um, when it was understood and not just known that was understood in a real way that all this could end—that we uh, and all this around us are actually was actually terribly fragile and in an instant could stop to be. Um, and in the same way that 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 was the psychology of the atomic age, I wonder if we find ourselves in the same place um, at this moment. Again, I seem to quote T.S. Eliot every time uh, we come to where we started and know the place for the first time. The experience of being alone at home uh, with a spouse, with someone one loves deeply, um, at least for me, can not help but bring to mind the powerful story of love and loneliness that is Colombian novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez's love in the time of cholera. I mentioned this to my husband and I was retelling the story of this novel and what I feel it says to to us today um just last week and and um on one of the last days when we could walk freely around our neighborhood um talking about marquez of course leads inevitably to 100 years of solitude his his masterpiece his great novel uh and his obsession with solitude that extended into all of his works uh solitude is the central paradox that it is the inescapable human condition by which we are all bound um, and yet it is the state of being and feeling alone. Um, It's the very thing that binds us together as humans in universal sympathy but as Joseph Conrad said uh, in, in, in one of the most famous lines of Heart of Darkness, we live as we dream alone. That isn't sad exactly and it isn't happy it's something beyond feeling or emotion rather marquez offers the perfect summation of this emotion comfort tinged with hope in the final paragraph of his acceptance of the nobel prize for literature he was speaking about the solitude of latin america in fact i think the title of the speech is the solitude of latin america Um, and then in the final paragraph he does turn to referring to the atomic bomb brought by brought about by oppenheimer's trinity test um but now I feel like he's talking about something more, even if he didn't know it. He's talking about a truth that still applies and applies to all of us. I want to read that last paragraph of his, of his famous uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech. On a day like today, my master William Faulkner said, I decline to accept the end of man. I would fall unworthy of standing in this place that was his if I were not fully aware that the colossal tragedy he refused to recognize 32 years ago is now, for the first time since the beginning of humanity, nothing more than a simple scientific possibility. Faced with this awesome reality that must have seemed a mere utopia through all of human time, we, the inventors of tales, who will believe anything, feel entitled to believe that it is not yet too late to engage in the creation of the opposite utopia, a new and sweeping utopia of life, where no one will be able to decide for others how they die, where love will prove true and happiness will be possible, and where the races condemned to 100 years of solitude will have, at last and forever, a second opportunity upon the earth. We are, my friends, even and especially as we are alone in this space, we are together. Uh, here in in this liminal space, your in-series is beginning to think about how we can respond with innovation, with creativity, uh, how we can make the impossible now possible. I look forward to sharing, sharing these thoughts with you in the coming weeks here in this podcast and through our other in-series spaces Uh, last week as the ring cycle was finished i was reminded of the incredible artistry of german soprano waltrud meyer in the metropolitan opera's ring cycle she sang a stunning voltralta next to debbie voigt's uh, equally stunning brunhilde well maybe not equally but almost equally Originally Meyer had been planned to sing the Brünnhilde. the production had been designed for her in a way um, Which would have been her first Brinhilde. Uh But in the end she pulled out saying she didn't think the role was for her or that she would ever sing the entire role. We are lucky however That she did record the final emulation scene once and I thought uh, that scene within its image of coming out of fire, of coming to the other side of fire, out of a refiner's fire to something new, to something um, that is a second opportunity upon the earth, uh, would be a wonderful place to end today. So I want to play this recording of the uh, final section of Brynhilde's of Immolation, Aria from Götterdämmerung, as performed by Coltrude Meyer uh, before we close off. friends, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is our first work of art. Go and make your life civil. Stay well, stay connected, and I'll speak to you next time.